Today, we're talking to Rick Rainey, software engineer and the commercial software engineering team at Microsoft. How's it going, Rick? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you, Jason. How are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Um, this has been an episode a long time in the making because Carl and I, I don't even know when this ha- it was it, like years ago. It, it was uh, a little over three years ago where we met a few people that worked at Microsoft and uh, were running Linux as their debit machines full time. Mm-hmm. And they, they wanted to be on the show, but things just fell through. Mm-hmm. And throughout the years, we kept this topic and for various reasons, uh, you know, it's come up and gone away. But uh, fortunately, a coworker of mine is using Linux full time for several years. So that came to be a, a, a nice way to bring this topic back forward again. That's awesome. And and no spoilers, but like this is like the perfect time because I've actually been doing more and more Linux work and I've been integrating some Linux into my dev workflow. So the, the it's actually kind of good that it was delayed for three years because I'm much uh much more well-versed on the topic now. Okay, so what do we have for the comment of the week, Carl? Right, I'm going to omit this person's name because they reached out uh, you know, privately, but uh, I will just say it's an internal Microsoft employee. It said, uh, good morning. It was an awesome Teals episode. Thank you for enlightening me to this resource. We're moving to a more rural location, and I look forward to reaching out to the school there. Uh, keep up the awesome show and be excellent. Will you be excellent as well? And if you want to get mentioned on the show, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com or comment on our website or Twitter. We especially love those five-star iTunes reviews. Yes, we do. Okay, moving right along, let's jump into the news. So actually, the first one is in a, it, the first one is more of like a tech tip, and this is just something that we've wanted to talk about for a while. And I'm wondering, too, if, if Rick is familiar with this. Rick, do you use WireGuard? I do not. You don't? What? I do not. <laughs> a Linux guy not using WireGuard. Okay, so... WireGuard. So, you know, I've always had this um, sort of love hate relationship with VPNs. I've always wanted to get access back to my the my basically my home network. I wanted to be able to securely get in there. And I've done some insecure things in the past, I will admit to. Um, There was a one time that I had RDP exposed on the Internet, but I had it on an obscure port, which obscurity is uh, um, obfuscation is not a good security measure, but nonetheless, I did it. Um, and then with my ubiquity gear, I set up a VPN, which is, which is a horrible experience. I will just tell you, it is just a horrible experience and it does not work well. It just, uh, it doesn't work well. Whenever I try to VPN in my house, you know, it's like negotiating connection, connecting, opening connection. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, it just goes through like this big, um, this big dance. And then I couldn't access half the stuff anyway. And it just really sucked. A friend of mine, um, I think like a year ago said, Hey, WireGuard is like the greatest thing to ever exist. And that stuck in the back of my head for a long time. And I finally spent some time with WireGuard and he's right. It is like the greatest thing to ever exist. So it's a VPN that is literally, it's less than 4,000 lines of code. I mean, just to give you an idea of like the complexity of this thing, but it's built with all the modern security practices. And um, it's basically a very simple to configure VPN. Now it took me, I think it took me like an hour um, it was mostly me thinking it was more complicated than it actually was because you have to generate some public key, private key stuff. Um, and then you also have to have this um, basically a command line that or not a command. You, have, you basically have like some IP tables commands, which are just a little bit over my head. Um, but once I once I got through all of that stuff, I had a working VPN set up, um, like I said, like an hour. And this thing, there's clients for for every operating system. And it takes literally milliseconds for this to connect. 
This is a totally different VPN experience. Like you can be, I can be out and about somewhere and I can connect to my VPN and you hit connect and it almost looks broken because it goes connected. Like not, like there's not even a delay, like as if like the, the actual radio button is just bloop or the button, it just flips over and you are instantly connected. Um, which is, which is just totally a game changer. So I've been using that. And, and again, I think we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more, but I've been using that to basically tunnel back into my home network and actually access some uh, Linux machines, which is really nice, but I can access anything on my network. I can actually access my TV tuners. I can access RDP servers, VPN servers, all of that. And what's great about, uh, wire VPN or WireGuard. This really sounds like a VPN commercial, doesn't it? (laughs) This is free though. It's free. So it's not a commercial, but what's cool about it is that, um, it is free, but it's built into the, uh, it's now in the Linux kernel. So it's like insanely performant. I mean, if you have, if you are out and about and have a high speed connection, um, everything I've tested on, um, I'm basically like, if I'm on my iPhone and I do a speed test over LTE and I get like a hundred by 20. I VPN into my house and I verify that all all the routing is happening through there. I do a speed test. It will be like, it'll be like 99.5 and 19.5, like, or better. (laughs) Um, Basically, like you can't even tell that it's happening. And in fact, the the iPhone client for WireGuard, you can set it up so that whenever you're in, actually the desktop clients work like this as well for your laptops. But you can literally set it up so that whenever your Wi-Fi, uh, when you're not connected to Wi-Fi, when you're connected to cellular, you can actually have the VPN turned on. So you can route everything through your house with basically no noticeable difference in battery life. And for me, since I have a fiber connection at home, no noticeable difference in performance. And in fact, there's been a couple of times when I didn't realize I had it turned on for a couple of days and I was routing all my traffic through my house. And, um, yeah, so it's just like a, a total game changer in terms of like a secure, simple and fast way to do this question. Yeah, I think the most interesting <laughs> thing uh, about it, especially since, you know, we were chatting back and forth mm-hmm. as you're doing it is how simple it was to get set up. Yeah. I mean, most VPNs that are as simple to set up are usually some sort of paid product, um, that, you're kind of limited on features to mm-hmm. a certain degree, but this sounds like it's lightweight, it's quick, it just does its job and gets out of the way, which yeah. is what you look for in a lot of software. Yeah, because there's like Open VPN, right? And like it's just, you know, I'm I'm not like the dumbest person in the world, but I always feel like I'm super over my head, and and I will figure it out, right? Like I I can get through that kind of stuff, but then whenever I come back to it like a year later and I look at like my configuration, I'm like, what was I doing? I don't and like I have to relearn it from scratch. So right now I'm looking at my WireGuard configuration. So there's, um, uh, for the server, I basically have an address, a listen port, <laughs> a private key, and then I have two commands, one that gets run whenever whenever this connection comes up and one, one whenever it goes down. And then you have a line in here for each peer. So I have p- literally peer, public IP equals, and allowed IPs equals. <laughs> so it's it's three lines of code for each peer that I wanna have on the server. And then uh, it would be, it's, uh, sorry, it's, it's actually two in the configuration section. And then five lines of configuration for the server, five lines, five easy to understand lines. Like I'm looking at them now and I'm like, I get what's going on here. So um, to me, that's, that's super, super significant. So I love it. And I love that um, uh, one thing that you can do is on the client, you can change effectively like the traffic that you're routing through it or the scope of, of the, what you're connecting to. 
So on my phone and actually on my laptop is where I use it the most. I actually have three uh, configurations on there and it's literally just one line of code is different uh, in each configuration. I have one where I basically only, I do split tunnel and I only route internet traffic through. I have another one where I can access just one server in my house. And then I have another one that does a full tunnel, routes everything through that VPN connection. So depending on what the situation is, if I'm out on LTE, like I trust the connection, right? So I don't feel like I have to route everything. So I can just like, if I just want to access one server, I can just set up that connection. If I'm in a coffee shop and I'm on like, you know, sketchy Wi-Fi, I can just connect the full tunnel and then I know everything is encrypted and, and over that. So I just encourage everybody to check it out. It is, um, it is really amazing. You, you could run it like on a Raspberry Pi, I assume in your house. And then you just do a simple port forward. Um, VPNs are always kind of weird in how you do that kind of stuff. I'm literally running it on a bare metal Linux server here, and I'm literally just forwarding a port to it. That's it. It's not complicated at all. Even I can do it. Cool. Okay. Uh, next article is, uh, Wikipedia turns 20. Yeah. I saw this article and I'm like, that can't be right. (laughs) Wikipedia has been around forever. It's been around since like the birth of the public internet. Yeah. And then I went and looked it up and it was, it's birthday is January 15th. Where'd you look it up? On Wikipedia? I looked it up on Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I love your comment before the show started. You said that like 20 years, like doesn't feel like enough and it feels like too much. Like yeah. that number in my head, I, I can't, I just can't grapple with the fact that, that it's 20 because I'm just like, it should be way older than that. But I'm also like, man, 20 years. I'm like, that's crazy. That's, that's a long time in internet time as well. Yeah. I mean, it kind of showcases like how new our field still is, you know, especially once you go on the web side of things and, you know, this is really going to be probably for the foreseeable future, the prime example of a long lived project on the internet. Mm -hmm. So, you know, seeing the history of this is really tracking the history of the internet in many ways. Yeah. I got some nostalgia for you, which is totally off track, but I was just thinking about this the other day. So, so first of all, like 20 years old, so that would have been the year 2000. So I would have had internet for like five years. Okay. Like I would have had access to the internet for five years before Wikipedia came along. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's kind of wild. But I was just thinking about this the other day. Um, I was thinking about Yahoo and like when it started. And I remember it used to just be like, like this hand curated, handcrafted, like, um, list of links that was like, you know, nested. And I remember that I actually had like a relatively good, uh, mental model of like all of Yahoo <laughs> of all the links at the time, um, just shows you like how much simpler the internet was back then when, when you saw like, there was like the Twinkie project. I still remember some of the sites that were on there, but, uh, it was, uh, it was just a short list of websites on the internet period. So happy birthday, Wikipedia. Yeah. Happy birthday. I just, I wish I was turning 20 or maybe 21. <laughs> <laughs> Good clarification there. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, okay. Linux contributions no longer restricted to 80 characters per line. I didn't realize that they were. That's wild. Yeah. And you know, you know, this is always kind of a fun kind of topic because, you know, it's in many ways, it's an opinion based it's tabs versus spaces in a different format. Um, 
And this is actually not a terribly new one. I just missed it until now. This uh, came out in June 1st of 2020. Um, and Torvalds basically said that, you know, in the past 80 character lines were for, you know, people operating in terminals Mm -hmm. and in modern computing, really, we don't have, you know, we have widescreen monitors. We have a lot of tooling that can make up for, you know, you know, that we don't have restrictions on like we used to. And more importantly said excessive line breaks are bad. They cause real and everyday problems. And, you know, removing this restriction, you know, makes code more natural and, you know, lets it flow in ways that people are going to be able to parse and understand the code better. When you have that line break in the wrong spot, it can throw mental errors in there. I mean, uh, a few years ago, we talked about that uh, that Apple bug where they just had an if statement where they didn't put brackets around because if you have the one line underneath it, it's an implied Mm-hmm. you know, fully encapsulated thing. And somebody wrote some inserted some code because that bracket wasn't there and messed things up. Same thing with line breaks. It can cause that misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. So um, he actually put in a uh, commit into Linux 5.7 that uh, basically uh, prevented the linters from uh, making that an error anymore. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, and he, he made a really good point about things like grep, right? Because like you use grep to like search something and you know you'd only get a partial line um so you know if it if somebody split something across two different lines so you made a good case here so i i didn't you know i didn't really have a good frame of reference for this um other than the fact that i open up when i open up terminal i always make it wider <laughs> but <laughs> i opened up a uh you know some code of mine and just sort of look for some lines that were long but i didn't feel like were too long and, and there, I found plenty of examples that were like 90 characters, for example, or a hundred characters. So I am totally on board. Like I, I, I found some extremely reasonable lines of code that were above 80. Um, and part of it was just like some of the names they were using descriptive names, um, which I think was valuable and, and I didn't find any of them difficult to read. So, um, so I, I find this more interesting than anything. I don't think it affects us. <laughs> I don't know yeah. anybody else who's using this 80 character limit. Well, I, I I don't know anybody who's using it like Linux hardcore as a project, but I have been part of corporations where that's just part of their coding policy. Yeah. And, you know, it's just something that, you know, they've created tooling once again to, you know, or linters that say, hey, we're just not accepting, you know, pull requests that have that in there. And a lot of times it doesn't make sense for some of those reasons that were listed before. Yeah. I remember using ReSharper and, and using having it put the line there. Um, and to me, that was just sort of a, like, Hey, like if you, if your code starts going past this line, just, you know, think about it, you know, and I think that's probably reasonable. I, I, that's interesting. You're talking about these corporations with those, those rules. Um, this could be, this, this could be this specific link might be used now to win some arguments in these companies. Yep. (laughs) Like I told you so (laughs) now we need to switch. Okay. And speaking of short code, writing hello world in zero lines of code. (laughs) Yeah. Once again, this, you know, this is a, you know, a concept that I think is, you know, sparks other topics, but, uh, in the code golf section of stack exchange, which I did, uh, I just realized is a thing. I didn't, I had no idea this existed. This is amazing. Or, yeah. I, I, I peruse it from time to time. You know, a lot of people put up problems and everybody tries to figure out how shortly, but, uh, with a lot of these linting tools, you know, they try to do code counting by lines of code. And obviously these aren't going to get it perfect. And there's ways to write code that looks like they get bundled in with 
useless lines and have it not be counted. So it isn't that you're writing zero lines of code, but it's you're writing code that a linter is just going to be like, hey, that's not code. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's effectively zero. Mm -hmm. You know, I think this kind of goes, uh, you know, and talks about, you know, it's not the the quantity of code that makes a quality uh, piece of software. You know, it's, you know, what does the software provide? And I think this just highlights, you know, we can go too far in our linting, in our code counting, in some of these metrics that have become somewhat standard over the years. Okay. But it also is interesting seeing uh, various different um, solutions to this. So you, you yeah. see Haskell and Java and Groovy and, you know, pretty much any of the top 20 languages, they're all going to have solutions. Yeah, I think this is more pointing out like kind of a not a bug, but a limitation rate of the of the uh, the the line of code counters. But um, you know, like who cares? It's fun. But yeah, so codegolf.stackexchange.com to me, that's like the bigger story. I didn't even yeah, you, we probably had it in stories before, but for some reason, I looked at the URL and I'm like, what's this? And then I went up to the top, and there's some cool stuff out there. So have I given away our secret now for good news stories? <laughs> <laughs> we just go there every once in a while. Apparently, cool, cool. Okay. So let's move on to our main topic, which is Rick and Linux and using it as a dev machine. <laughs> so, so Rick, are you, are you using like for your dev machine, are you using Linux full time? I do. Yeah. I run uh, Ubuntu 18.04 okay. uh, full time as my, as my dev environment. And okay. I should uh, qualify this too. I mean, I am by no means a Linux expert. Um, well, that's good because we aren't either. <laughs> um you know, I started doing this about, uh, shoot, it was probably about two years ago, maybe a little, little longer. Um, I mean, I've kicked the tires in Linux a little bit and I've, you know, had a Mac a few years ago that I, that I did some dev on, but, uh, for the most part, I, you know, this is something where <clears throat> I continue, I consider myself to still be a student, uh, of the platform. Okay. And we're on a team's call yeah, right now. So. Your question, I do run, yeah. I do run it full time. So are we on, a, I mean, are you running teams on Linux right now? Is that this call or not? I am not. Oh. Uh, so I am actually on a Windows machine right now. Okay. Uh, although there, you can, there's a Linux client now. Yeah, um, there is. I've, I've run yeah. it. It works. Yeah. Yeah. I ran the early version of it. It was a little bumpy at first and I haven't come back to it um, to see. I've, I've heard a lot of good things about it. Uh, so it's matured quite a bit. Um, but no, I'm on a, I'm on my Windows machine right now. And, um, you know, my dev machine is, is strictly that it's, it's dev only. Okay. Uh, so, you know, no email, no teams, um, just, just my dev tools. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cause I installed, I had a old, I shouldn't say old. I mean, like anybody would be happy to have this laptop, but, um, I feel so bad like using it in this way, but it actually is really nice. It's a, the Dell XPS 13, 32 gigs of Ram, a terabyte of hard drive, and it's got a 10th gen i7. And I put Ubuntu on there. I actually installed the desktop version. So I was running full Linux. And then I was sort of perusing the available apps. So Teams was on there. I don't think OneDrive was on there. Um, um, Slack was on there. Um, VS Code, that was obviously key. So like if you want to do graphical... Um, well, maybe I should ask you that first. Are you using server or desktop? I'm using the desktop version. Okay. So you are. Yep. And, and then are you running VS Code on there? Yep. Okay. Cool. Yeah, so VS Code, um, you know, some of the tools that you just mentioned. Um, and um, yeah, that it's, uh, it's, it's pretty lightweight. In fact, I run this on a machine. It's an old, um, 
it's a it's an old Lenovo X1 Carbon. Oh, okay. um, not super powerful, um, <clears throat> but it 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 really performs uh, compared to you know my my Windows environment with you know Visual Studio and, mm-hmm. and Windows 10 and so on. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it it works out really well for what I'm doing on it. That's pretty. So cool. is that a work provided laptop then that you're using that you just kind of threw that image on? Yeah, it is. It's, it was an old one that uh, was sitting around and. Uh, never got recycled, and so I just <clears throat> threw Linux on it one day. In fact, it was um, I did it. Um, if, if you recall, you know we used to do the 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 one week hacks um, before all mm-hmm. the COVID stuff came in, <laughs> and I actually did it right before going to one of those uh, hack events um, that we that we went to, and and ever since then I've never turned back since. Yeah, I was so gonna I, gonna, I was gonna ask what motivated it. it. Yeah. What was that? I was gonna ask like what motivated you to do that. Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah, the reason, I, I guess the first thing was, you know, at the time, um, I wanted to immerse myself in the world where my customers were coming from. Um, so I have a you know, long history of working, you know, with ISVs. Uh, even before Microsoft, I worked <clears throat> uh, worked for an ISV in the insurance industry and also in the telecom industry. Um, so my background comes, you know, largely from working with ISVs. ISVs and they're typically coming from environments that are, you know, open source software, you know, non-Windows. <clears throat> and uh, I continually found myself working with with these with these engineers on projects, and I'm coming to the table with my Windows and Visual Studio and you know you know PowerShell stuff, and they're coming in with you know Mac or Linux and CLI and you know Bash and stuff like that. So there was always there was just this this big divide between the two of us <clears throat> that made it, made it hard to, to, to work together. So it, the, the main motivation or the initial motivation was to just put myself in the world where my customers were in. Um, <clears throat> the other thing was there was a growing, you know, at the time I had a growing interest in trying to understand the friction that our non windows developers were facing, you know, with our tooling. Uh, and then in some cases, even try to, you know, drive some change uh, towards that. <clears throat> so I can't tell you how many times I, you know, hear complaints about, you know, things from customers about, you know, the scripting not working the way it should, or, you know, there's gaps and gaps in the technology, you know, on, on our platform. And I'm coming from a world where it just works, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> everything always works. And that's, that's because we were prioritizing the work around Windows and Windows tooling and things like that. Um, so <clears throat> I'll give you an example. There was, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, there was the, um, you might recall that there was a time when the, there was a really big divide or, or lack of parity between PowerShell and CLI tools, particularly around the Azure, um, Azure scripting uh, mm-hmm. tools. Yep. And <clears throat> so there was a big push in, um, in the cat team at the time to work on closing that gap, um, and making CLI just as functional, uh, as a scripting language as PowerShell was. And <clears throat> so we, you know, that, that, that was an interesting endeavor and, and a very eye-opening experience for me, you know, as I started to immerse myself in this, I was like, my gosh, there's, there is a big gap here. There's a lot of things that I'm used to just, you know, really easily banging out and doing that I can't do, you know, with the Azure CLI tools. Um, and then it even goes, <clears throat> goes further, um, like visual studio, uh, proper, for example, um, at the time I was also doing a lot of, um, arm template development. I was working with the Azure resource manager team, 
at the time. <clears throat> and, you know, the, if you've done any ARM template development in Visual Studio, you know there's actually a project type for that. Uh, I think it's called Resource Manager. And I've actually blogged about it a few times in, in some old blogs. Um, really super powerful tool, and it does some pretty neat little things for you. For example, uh, when you create that project, it spits out a really nice PowerShell script for you so you can deploy your templates. Um, but it doesn't spit out a CLI script for you. So again, another example where you know the, the experience for a developer coming from a non-Windows environment, um, that you know, there's there wasn't that parity. Um, so I took that opportunity, for example, I actually built a CLI version of that script. It's actually it's out there on the um, Azure Quick Start templates. So you know, you know, if you're familiar with the Quick Start templates, there's mm -hmm. a bunch of templates out there to tell you how to deploy all kinds of resources. And if you scroll down to the bottom of that list, there's some uh, scripting tools. And there's a version of that PowerShell script in CLI that's out there as well. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, that's, uh, that's kind of a, a little bit of history about, you know, kind of why. And then I think, you know, maybe the, another thing that comes to mind in respect to your question about, you know, why the switch to Linux. Um, containerization was a big driver to, you know, Docker and Kubernetes. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's the, you know, all the new you know, cool kids are using, you know, this, this platform. Um, and that's just inherently or natively, you know, born from, you know, Linux platform, a Linux environment. And uh, so I found that there was a lot, you know, that also facilitated, you know, some of the containerization work that I was doing by, you know, getting myself in that in that space and, and working with, you know, things like .NET Core instead of just, you know, .NET Framework, you know, make sure I'm, you know, building, you know, code that's that's compatible across Windows, Linux, and so on. Uh, so containerization was uh, <clears throat> also a, a big part of that, you know, you know a little bit later on uh, in the journey. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's kind of, that's kind of what I expected you to mention was the, was the containerization. Cause for me, like being in an environment where Docker sort of lives just makes it so much easier. I remember when I first started working with Docker on windows, it, not the, not Docker on windows, but Docker on windows, <laughs> um, you know, you would build an image and I remember it's just like, I don't know. You'd have this weird issue. Is it like being built inside Linux? Is it not being so? And it's just like, it, it's making my head hurt, like where stuff is actually happening and how stuff is being brokered around when you're, when you're actually in Ubuntu and like just in Linux, you just say like, you know, you install Docker and then you say like Docker build Docker run. And like, it's just native and you do a lot of complexity gets shut away. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's uh you're, you're spot on. I mean, I tried the <clears throat> tried the Windows approach a few times myself. Um, and I remember asking an engineer one time about, you know, if there was availability or how how would I – I was trying to do something in, in a Windows container. And they basically said, you know, don't even talk to us. We're you – know, it's, it's a Linux container. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, that's what that, – that was the, the road you had to go down. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's just there is a lot less friction. And, and I found that there was also, you know, the documentation just wasn't as good, you know, when you were coming from that Windows environment. I mean, there was a very valiant effort um, from multiple vendors, you know, to try to close that gap. But there was always something. There was always something that, you know, just was missing that would result in hours and hours of, you know, trying to figure out why you couldn't do something. Um, and it just didn't exist um, when I went to, you know, just Linux only. Yeah, so a lot of those benefits are things that I 
could have guessed. And it's nice to hear that those are confirmed. But, you know, now that you've been running Linux for a while now and you're getting really comfortable with, you know, how that works, are there any challenges that still get you or anything that's not as slick as maybe your dev environment on Windows? Um, yeah, good. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> as you were asking the question, the first thing that came to mind was carriage return line feed versus line feed. Um, <laughs> I, I continue to get tripped up on that one quite a bit, um, mm. when it's, particularly when I'm working with people coming from a, a Windows side, um, Windows environment. Um, so that one we, we tend to tend to see. I didn't even um, think of that. That's, that's something to watch out for, right? So if they save the file on a Windows machine and then you open it over on Linux and it's, yeah, you're going to have issues. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we bump into that. It's not a big deal. It's just kind of more of an, mm-hmm. an annoyance, but uh, you know, some, some other things like, um, you know, I guess going, you know, going back to the scripting conversation, PowerShell versus CLI. Um, yeah. I know there's some things out there where you can run, you know, PowerShell on, on Linux now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know that, that kind of feels and smells a lot like, you know, doing windows containers, uh, too, right. It's just, it's not native. Um, mm, I, I think yeah. I actually, I, I, I think I would probably disagree there just because, yeah. um, I would put it more in the category of, uh, .NET core, you know, .NET core was, okay. you know, it was sort of split up and it's like, let's, let's remove the windows pieces so that, so that we can just run .NET anywhere. And, um, my understanding then is like PowerShell core is, is built on that. Um, and they did have to rip out a whole bunch of pieces. So, I, I don't, I don't, um, I haven't really worked with PowerShell on Linux yet, but I, I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't steer people away from it. You know, if you got to yeah, do a powershell thing on Linux, I think it's perfectly workable. Yeah, no, good. That's a good call out. Thanks for, thanks for checking mm-hmm. me on that one. Cause, uh, cause you're right. I mean, if, if you, you know, if, it, if you just build on the core, you know, the .NET core, then, then you can have that parity there. Yep. I guess my thing, it's, it's, um, it's more of, um, you know, if, if you're coming from a Linux background, is, is PowerShell going to be the language? Is that going to be the scripting language that you're going to choose to use? Um, yeah, probably not. Me personally, I mean, so I've gone from one extreme to the other, actually. I've, I used to do just a ton of PowerShell and consider myself pretty pretty efficient at it um, to the point now where I do a ton of scripting and I actually struggle with PowerShell. <laughs> mm. Um and it's again, it's because of the world that I'm in uh, or working in the environment that I'm working in and PowerShell just isn't that it's just not that language or that scripting tool that I it, that I default to. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's a good call out. Um, <clears throat> you know, some of the other challenges, um, you know, that well, we talked about the teens client that pretty much closed that gap. So that really wasn't an issue. But mm-hmm. early on, I remember really wanting to be able to do teams because I was wanting to screen share um, presentations and meetings and be on my Linux machine. Mm. And so that was a real big point of friction for me early on. Not so much now, nowadays. Uh, but what I do, what I did to solve that problem was just, you know, RDP into my dev box, mm-hmm. uh, my windows machine. Um, and then I just share that way. So like Carl's talking, you know, when we work together, a lot of the times when he sees my desktop, I'm actually on my Windows machine, but I'm RDP'd into my <laughs> Linux machine, and, and that's what I'm presenting uh, okay. to the audience. Best of both, uh, yeah. But yeah, it's nice to see the Teams client is out there. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on eventually. I just haven't gotten around to it. Um, the solution I have right now works pretty well. Yeah. Um, I think another one was 
this is not a really big issue, but the the lack of VPN support, you know, from our from our customer or company that we work in mm. um, on the Linux client. Um, and there's some stuff out there, you know, that there's some, some Linux clients out there or VPN clients that are available that we can use. Um, I'm not sure that they're officially supported yet. They may be. Mm. There were some announcements in the last couple of months. Uh, that may may have changed that. I'm not 100 yeah. sure. So so for somebody listening, you know, they just might there might be like corporate infrastructure or things that they might just need to think through. That's a good that's a good call out. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the other, you know, probably the last thing that's coming to mind is like the that you know, like Visual Studio versus VS Code. Um, uh, you know, like I talked about the difference, like, for example, the ARM template project, you know, in Visual mm-hmm. Studio proper versus, you know, like the experience you would have otherwise. Um, but, you know, just the there, I don't know. There's a there's a lot of things that Visual Studio does. Visual Studio proper on Windows is so powerful and it does so many. There's so many automated things in it that don't exist in VS Code or exist in a different way through some extension. Uh, so there's some you know differences there. Um, and then, you know. Maybe the speed. I, I find I find Visual Studio Code just so much faster and resilient um, than when I'm having to work in in Visual Studio. Yeah, it's definitely uh, more lightweight. But yeah, yeah. I, I'm I'm totally agreeing with like your your observations because I remember I was at a hack event and like I was using VS Code and somebody said, "Hey, see if you can get unit tests working in this thing." And I don't remember what it was. There was some complexity around it, and I followed these instructions, and it was like an hour and a half later. And I had this thing set up and it just was, it it wasn't great. I think it was some unit tests around .NET Core back in the early days. And then I like fired up Visual Studio, big Visual Studio. And I was like, new unit test project, reference, run tests. And it was, it worked. It just worked out of the box. So, you know, that's probably for our listeners. Like if you had to give up Visual Studio, that's probably the largest sacrifice. Like that would be that probably is what will block most people that are listening to this for sure. Yeah. Don't, yeah. Don't underestimate that. Um, that, that learning curve, you know, I got to tell you when I, when I made the switch, it was incredible. The productivity hit I took. In fact, I used to always ask myself, why would somebody develop <clears throat> in an environment where, where compared to like windows, they had all this stuff. It did so much stuff for you. I never quite understood that. Um, <laughs> you know, Anyway, when I made the switch, the the just the amount of time I would find I, I spent just trying to do the simplest little things. Um, you know, I was constantly on Google trying to or being mm-hmm. trying to try, trying to find uh, trying to figure out how to do something very very simple. Uh, today I just kind of laugh at myself, but uh, but yeah, that's um, you know going from something like Visual Studio to VS Code. There's 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 a learning curve there. Yeah. Um, Yep. There's definitely yep. some cases where one works and better and where the other works better. Yep. Yeah. One of the things that confused me when kind of Visual Studio Code <clears throat> and .NET Core came out was why they kept putting the focus on all these command line like .NET new and to, to do right. all those things. And it wasn't until like I really gave Visual Studio Code a shot. Like that's because Visual Studio Code really is that editor. It's not meant to manage your project and do all those things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the difference between an IDE and a code editor. And it it was also kind of reinforced to me recently, you know, the project that I'm working on right now has a heavy Java component. And I don't mind writing the code in VS Code, but there's like trying to, you know, interact with some of the Java project things. I had to open up IntelliJ 
to just kind of get that set up because I didn't know the CLI equivalent of, you know, if there is a, like a Java new and, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, you know, really understanding what are the limitations of the tool in this case. And then, you know, how was the, you know, it meant to solve that problem that you're still going to have to interact with. Yep. The other, the other question that I really wanted to ask you, Rick, was, you know, whenever you're in Linux, like Docker containers are, are trivial, right? I mean, cause like we mentioned earlier, they're, they're native and, um, there's been a couple of cases where I go and I install some packages or something. And, and, you know, they say that like windows has bit rot and, and they make these claims that like bit rot doesn't happen other places. But in my mind, like bit rot also refers to in, 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 you know, what it really refers to is like, my system is in a state that I can't like fully comprehend. Like I, inst- like I can literally install a package and then uninstall it. And then maybe it left this rogue file or it changed a path or something. Right. And my system is just, it's not pristine anymore. It's, it's been, <laughs> it's been made unpristine and containers provide a really interesting use case here. I mean, you could literally for each application you're developing, as an example, create a container and do all your development within that container. And then all the tools that you need, everything could be in that container with virtually, you know, no cost. Um, so like, do you do anything with, you know, have you integrated at all containers into like your dev process? No, no. I, um, I mean, unless I'm obviously, you know, building container right, images, right. um, for, you know, target something like Kubernetes, but, um, but no, in terms of you know doing development in a, in a containerized environment, um, that's not something I've done. Okay. Yeah, that's an interesting. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to think through that. Um, it seems like a good practice, uh, but it also like just adds like one minor little step where you know you're in a hurry to do something and you're just like, ah, I'm just going to do it on this machine. ABT get install, you know, foo or Python or whatever. Well, I'm trying to. I'm, I guess I'm trying to think through like the just the GUI part of that. Right. So mm-hmm. if you, if I spin up a container, um, and then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm and then I'm writing code in my host yep. and then I have to, now I have to put the code into the container where all my dependencies and libraries and things, things that like, like what you're saying that might make things not pristine in my environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, that's where all that exists. Uh, and then do building and testing and things like that. I'm just trying to, I'm trying to figure out what that experience would actually look like. Yeah. I think what I would do is I would, I would still have like a source control or a source uh, folder. And then I would probably map Docker volumes to that. So each environment would have its source code mapped into a volume so that it's on the host so that the host can always look at the source code. So you can open up up in VS code, for example. Um, but then you, um, from your terminal would be like in the Docker container and you would be, so Python would be a good example. Like I think Ubuntu includes Python, but like pretend like it doesn't, um, I don't know, but let's say rust. I don't know if, I don't know if rust comes with Ubuntu, for example. So you would have a, um, container for your rust project and then you would, um, you would bash into that container Um, and then you would, you know, like rust compile and like do, you know, all your, all your rust related tooling and unit testing and everything would all happen in that container and VS code would just be looking at the source control. I don't know. I'm just, I was just curious because there might be some, some hidden challenges of doing it that way. Um, although some of my experience that I'll talk about here in a little bit would indicate that it's, it's not, um, it's not too much of a hurdle. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm wondering too, like, you know, there's, there's probably environment variables and things that need to be set, 
you know, globally. In well, some do that in a container. <laughs> True. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what actually, that's the beauty of it. Right. Is like I said, for each application, you're setting all of that in there and then you could potentially export it and like save it off to actually, the more I think about this, the better this idea sounds because you could literally archive these, these uh, container images um, and you know, like you get a new laptop and you just pull these down and like each application is just, it's all set up. You're ready to go. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's an interesting approach. I, I really have. So like I said, I've never done it before and haven't really given it much thought, but you, you're, uh, you're sparking my interest in this. I may, <laughs> I may spin off and do something like that. Yeah. So have you had a chance to work with WSL or windows subsystem for Linux? you know, and then compare, you know, how your workflow is with the, your current workflow in Linux. Um, yes. And, um, <laughs> I am not a fan of WSL. Um, I'll just go ahead and say that now. Um, yeah, I, I tried it in the early days and it, it just, it, there, it wasn't the same thing. There, there, there was not the parity between mm-hmm. WSL and what I had running on my Linux environment. Um, I know WSL2 closes that gap. Yep. Um, but even, even yes, I think it was yesterday I saw something somewhere. Somebody was having some problem with Git, a Git configuration that was specific to um, their WSL2 environment. Um, and so, anyway, to answer your question, Carl, yeah, I have tried it a little bit, um, but I don't have a lot of patience. And when things start, um, not working the way I expect them to, I, I tend to just, you know, move them aside. And that's kind of been my experience with WSL fair or not fair. I don't know. Uh, again, I know WSL two is a lot better, uh, in that respect, but I guess I come back to, you know, if you're going to run WSL two, then why not just run, you know, a native, a native, a native, you know, image mm-hmm. of, of Ubuntu or Linux or whatever you're, you're doing. Yeah. Which is basically what WSL2 is doing. I mean, under the covers, like, I don't know, they're obviously doing a little bit extra. And yes, if you were, if you were out in those edges, you could, you could potentially run into some edge cases. That's fair. Yeah. We even had, you know, I think it was, uh, well, last year we had a project we were working on and um, we had to actually put disclaimers in some of the documentation around you know, support for WSL because some people were coming to the project from, you know, Windows running WSL and um, probably half of us were doing development on, on Mac or Linux. And, um, you know, we we constantly were running into issues where it was working fine for everybody except for the people running WSL. Uh, and it would be some just really odd, you know, edge case thing that was different in that environment that didn't exist in the native the native environment. And so we ended up putting just disclaimers on there saying, if you're going to run this, you know, from WSL, you're, you're kind of on your own. Um, yeah, that was, that was very likely to happen in, in the first version of WSL. Yeah. Yeah. It's much, much, much different these days. So I would just ask, tell anybody listening that, um, WSL two is a totally different ball game for sure. Yeah. I, I've heard that. And, and again, I'm, I'm not the, I'm not some, I shouldn't be the person really, I don't want to influence people one way or the other. I'm just, I'm giving you my yep. opinion. Um, now I have heard that, you know, WSL two, cause when, so when WSL two came out and, and some of the people on the team were raving about how great it was, I, you know, I still ask the question, you know, well, why not just, you know, spin up a VM? Cause mm-hmm. you're, that's, you almost are getting the same thing anyway. Um, 
And, you know, and then today I see, or not today, but, you know, in today's times, I see there's noise about, you know, Windows having a desktop, a, a Linux desktop on Windows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, building on that WSL uh, 2 experience. So, you know, perhaps it's something I should probably come back and reevaluate. Yeah. Um, because I do spend, you know, a lot of my time on the Windows machine. Sometimes, mostly yep. it's just because I'm already peed into my Linux. But um, you know, perhaps that's that's a way for me to achieve the same thing uh, with one machine. So yeah. we'll see. Yeah, I think um, I think for most people, if they're if they're not if if they are just trying to have a single Linux dev machine, let's say they have one computer and that's how they're going to access it, then WSL two is a really good choice. For me, I jump between my desktop and laptop. I could SSH into the WSL two, but to me, that's kind of weird. Like. Uh, that just feels a little weird to me. And then, um, yeah. And then there's potential like GPU issues, although that's just a virtual machine type of issue though, at the same time. So, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. Cause, um, and, and, you know, for, for a long time too, I struggled with, cause I had a really powerful machine that my windows machine runs on. And so I thought, well, I'll just run the, the Ubuntu image that, um, you know, that that's available through hypervisor. Right. Yeah. Um, but I just couldn't get the performance that I was looking for. There's always the, yeah, that's surprising. You know, the, the, the key, you know, the key typing delay. Um, you know, there's just, there was always something that just wasn't quite, that was just enough to, like I said, I'm not very patient. So, mm. um, if I couldn't solve the problem, I, I tended to move on. But you know, that I tried for a long time to make that one work and, and actually took that pretty far. Um, but um, ultimately, you know, I just ended up pulling this old laptop out of the, you know, dusting it off and throwing Linux on that. And I've just been running it ever since. That's probably the easiest thing for people to do <laughs> is really just make a USB key, boot off of that and install Ubuntu. Yep. Yeah. So who would you recommend try jumping onto, you know, Linux native install on, you know, an old PC laptop or a new one? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um well, anyone who has an old laptop or PC that's not doing anything. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, if you got if you have the hardware laying around and and you want to ex- you know explore the uh, the Linux world, the Ubuntu world, um, it, it's it's pretty neat. Um, I, like I said, I really enjoy it. It's my preferred environment, at least for Dev. Um, and if you have an interest in 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 the open source world and and learning more about the Linux you know development environment or open source dev environment, then that would be a, a great way to do it. And, and and again, if you don't have that, you you can go to you know run Windows 10 hypervisor. You know, there's a Linux image right right in there. You can spin one up real quick. You don't have to download anything. You just turn on your hypervisor and and uh, you know provision that 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 hype, that VM, and you have that same experience as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a good point. Um, so any, do you have any tips for somebody who like maybe just doesn't have any Linux experience so far to, to get started? Um, yeah. So I told you I wasn't very patient, but it's patience. <laughs> um, but you know, again, it was, I set out to, I knew it was going to be a hard, hard learning curve for me. Uh, and even today, and even today I still struggle with some things. Um, and I find myself having to go search on, you know, ask Ubuntu or whatever to, to find answers. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, just, I think it's more just be open-minded, have that growth mindset about, 
that, you know, it's a different environment. There, you know, there are a lot of people developing in this in this kind of environment. And the more you can learn about that, I think the better you're going to be as an engineer, because um, because now you can you can work in Windows and you can work in, mm-hmm. in Linux as well. Yeah, and then you're matching like your your production environment in many cases. I mean, Azure has more Linux usage, Linux VMs than Windows VMs. So, I mean, like the maj- the ma- majority of applications now are are running on Linux. So, just re- reducing that parity is always a, a nice idea. Cool. So, is uh, is 2021 the year of Linux on the uh, desktop? Hmm. <laughs> it is on mine. <laughs> <laughs> so the answer is yes. It finally happened. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, so I know I've talked about it on the show, so I'm not going to like go into to depth on it. But yeah, I mean, I, I have a, a Linux machine here that, that I talked about earlier, that XPS 13. And honestly, like my experience has just been, it's been getting better and better um, just using it from VS code. And what's amazing is I can connect VS code on two different machines at the same time and they stay in sync because all my development actually happens on Linux. And, and um, I suggest people really check out uh, VS code now in this remote SSH functionality, because it really is amazing. Um, I can manage, there's so much stuff I can manage in here and, and I'm finding like I have uh, a website that I'm using where I hit F5 in VS Code and I don't know exactly, like it figured out, you know, hey, this is a node application, so we're going to start this up automatically. And then it goes, um, hey, you know, we we see that your application is using port um, 3000 and it goes, so we've automatically port forwarded that for you, like proxying it through VS Code. And then I can actually hit open browser and it opens my local browser and I'm like viewing the web application hosted on this Linux server that's in my basement. And, um, I don't know, to me, that's just like mind blowing. Like it is so seamless, so simple. And then, you know, sort of tying everything together, I will be out somewhere and I will VPN into my house. I open up VS code and boom, like my exact same environment is there. And what's amazing is it doesn't affect my battery life because all the processing's happening in my house. And if I do like a Docker build, like nothing, the performance of that laptop is just crazy. So all of that kind of stuff is the, the performance is just, it's just really, it's really mind boggling. So I've really been enjoying it. And then also just the Docker extension for VS code, by the way, is just getting really awesome. You can go in there and view like your Docker logs and like manage your images and running content. Like it's, it's actually, you know, it's one of the things where I usually do through the command line, but I am very impressed in what capabilities the Docker extension for VS code has. So, um, I've actually been doing all of my development recently, um, a hundred percent, um, on Linux through VS code. And I've been very happy. So that's my experience. Yeah. Are you, are you running, uh, which version of Ubuntu? Yeah. I think it's 18. Um, let me look here. Um, one of the things I want to do this year is, is lay down the, uh, 20, Ubuntu 20 bits. Um, mm-hmm. I just, I just haven't you know done it yet. I haven't taken the time to do it, but, um, I was curious if you were running that by any chance. Let me look at what is the, oh, LSB underscore release dash a I'm running 20.10. I'm sorry. I'm running 20. Great. Yeah. So, I mean, it's so inconsequential that everything has worked and I didn't even realize that I was running 20. So for, for what that's worth, um, anything else you wanted to mention on this topic? Nope. No, I'm good. Okay. Awesome. Um, this has been, yeah. Where can people find you if they want to see some more of your work? 
Uh, call your people. <laughs> like I said, I don't, I'm not really active on Twitter anymore. Um, ping me on Twitter. I mean, I get on every now and then. So, okay. So what's your Twitter handle? Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to reach out to me on Rick Rainey TX, um, okay. I'll get a notification and can respond. Okay. That sounds good. And Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. You can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash why techie. So Rick, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us about using Linux as your dev machine. Well, thank you for having me on.